Hello there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local political podcast about beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I'm Dan, and joining me again in the studio today, our favorite transportation wonk, Brian. Long time no see, Brian. Hi, Dan. How are you? Thanks for having me here. It's, what, been like a week or something? Yeah, something like that. This is the second time I've been in your studio since you remodeled, and I am enjoying the place now. I like the uh, the sofa. Last time I was here, I tried to be a little bit more upright, you know, sitting up, posture, things like that. No, you are leaned back. This episode is something you are comfortable with. Exactly. <laughs> because we promised in the last episode, we need to go into this in a lot more detail. Yeah, it's a big issue. In the last episode, we said this was going to be a short one. This one's going to be long. Well, don't scare people off too soon. First, we're going to do a little bit of history, and then we're going to go into literally all the possible things you could do on a street to make safer. But why the heck are we doing? Well, there's lots of reasons why we're talking about it right now. I mean, obviously, it's an important subject. We should definitely be talking about this all the time as much as we can, especially as long as people continue to get hurt and killed on such a regular basis. So what's bringing this into focus? There's been a lot of political activity on this topic, for one thing. In particular, our new state senator, Andrew Gunardis, Mm -hmm. ran on street safety as one of his main issues in the campaign last year. Also, there's been some activist organizing outside of the electoral sphere as well. A lot of groups have been uh, taking their own action. One big development that's coming up next week is a street safety town hall. And it's being organized by our council person, Justin Brannon, right? Yeah, that's right. Councilmember Justin Brannon, Congressman Max Rose, State Senator Andrew Gennardis, and Assemblymember Matilde Frontis. The dream team. <laughs> They've been working a lot together lately. Of these four people, Justin has been at his job the longest. He's been there for only 15 months, and Mm -hmm. he's already the old man of the bunch. (laughs) Don't trust anyone over whatever Justin's age is. You can't trust those elder millennials. So there's been turnover in the sphere of our local elected officials, and it's a big part of the reason why you have this new momentum. Brandon is also bringing in some reps from the city government. So Polly Trottenberg, she'll be there. She's been the commissioner of the Department of Transportation for the entire length of de Blasio's administration. Mm. Uh, She's been one of the key executors of the city's street safety policy. And that's a pretty good get for Bay Ridge residents to have at their local town hall. Representatives from the NYPD, they'll be in attendance. The NYPD could send reps from the 6-8 precinct. And even out of that precinct, there's really no telling at this point whether they're going to be sending the commanding officer, community affair liaisons. Or one of the four officers that are assigned to traffic enforcement. Four? Four officers? Four. Not four at any given time. There's four total assigned to the entire precinct to do transit enforcement. Right. A lot of times the conversation goes to, well, we need more enforcement. We need more enforcement. We need more enforcement. Yes, we do need more than four. There are ways of making streets safer that don't require more enforcement. But before we get into that, what's the exact date on that town hall? Wednesday, March 27th. It's going to be at PS264. That's right on the corner of 4th Avenue and 89th Street. Nice and central. Nice central location. It's between two subway stops. They've got a nice big auditorium there that's ADA accessible. Uh, It's going to be 6.30 p.m. So a little bit early, but at the same time, they're originally looking at 6 o'clock. So they've actually moved it back to 6.30 to try to accommodate folks. So it's important for everyone who can make it out to show up. And the tagline for the event is identify dangerous locations throughout the neighborhood and discuss potential solutions. Okay, sure. You don't sound very convinced by the tagline. (laughs) So, So look, we already know where the dangerous locations are. 
I mean, to start off with anywhere where cars are sharing spaces with cities is a problem area. <laughs> we are going to talk about the areas where the DOT studied and they've identified that they are more problematic than other areas. The corridors that you're looking at in this area are 4th Avenue, uh, 86th Street, and also 8th Avenue. Mm-hmm. The DOT has already done a little bit of work in these areas. Yeah. You know, not as much as they could have, but they've screwed around a little bit with the uh, the walk timing signals and things like that. The point is for now is that the DOT has been studying this problem in Bay Ridge and Dyker Heights and all across the city. New York City has been bucking a pretty bad national trend. Road fatalities, pedestrian fatalities going up all across the country. New York City has been going the other way. It's been going down. And some of that has to do with lowering the speed limit, but also the street design changes that have been happening So the DOT, they've demonstrated that they know what's going on and how to fix it. They want to keep doing that and they want to do more of it. It was like a day ago that like Polly Trottenberg said that for bike lanes specifically, but I bet this applies to most street design is the issue isn't the funding. The issue isn't the money. The issue isn't the DOT wanting to do it. The issue is the process of getting all of these groups on board, community boards, local city council people, business owners. And that's what's slowing this down, not for lack of innovation, but because it takes a lot to educate an entire neighborhood as to why and how exactly these little changes are going to make things safer and why it's necessary. So there's a couple of ways this town hall could go. It could very well be a step in solidifying political support for the changes that are needed to make the road safer. And that's really just what you were talking about. There is broad and deep support for a lot of these initiatives, but it's not universal. Mm. So some of the changes are going to result in inconveniences that some of the driving folk would rather do without, particularly if it slows them down. So the other thing that could happen is that the opportunity to turn all of this into a rudderless shit show, that would be the other possible outcome. Oh, you no. end up you end up with a lot of complaining about red herrings like pedestrians crossing mid block and wearing dark clothing at oh, night. Please no like everyone's looking at their phones kind of bullshit as oh, to why this is happening. We're definitely gonna hear that at least once or three times <laughs> next Wednesday. And look, I mean, I've lost track of how many transportation committee meetings and pedestrian safety meetings that I've been to that's devolved into car crash victim blaming. And it's car crash. It's car crash, not car accident. This isn't like a car whoopsie. It's serious. Anything where a multi-ton vehicle has suddenly come to an abrupt stop. So how do we want to start? Well, I'd like to start with a little history. Where do we begin? Robert Moses, Peter Stuyvesant, the Lenape settlements. How far back are we going? I was going to go to 2013. Is that okay? I really wanted to go with Peter Stuyvesant's leg being blown off by a cannon, which is why he preferred driving. Well, you have my Halloween costume to look forward to then. (laughs) There we go. All right. So 2013 it is. So at the time, 4th Avenue was getting a lot of attention from the city. It was coming during a time when Queens Boulevard was earning its tabloid name, the Boulevard of Death. Mm. So the city government was getting serious about fixing it. This ugly, exhaust-choked, pollution-choked traffic sewer (laughs) doesn't have to be the destiny of these thoroughfares that, you know, they're running through the hearts of our cities, the hearts of our neighborhoods. These can and should be great streets, which is, you know, that's what they were calling Capital G, capital S. Exactly. So 4th Avenue was supposed to be one of these great streets. So at the time, it was a six-lane road through Park Slope and Sunset Park and a four-lane road in Bay Ridge. The original plan called for reducing the number of lanes in all three neighborhoods. 
with a few short exceptions. There's going to be a short stretch uh, between 65th and Ovington that was going to stay at four lanes, yeah. kind of by the highway where people are getting on and off. There we go, yeah. And also everything below 86th Street was going to stay at either four lanes or maybe three lanes. What happened is the DOT had become incredibly deferential to the wishes of community boards specifically. Cool. So in Bay Ridge, you had CB10 taking a look at this. And they did something that the other two boards or the other two neighborhoods didn't do. They took the proposal and they tore it piece by piece a line item vote instead of doing a vote on uh, the whole proposal, you know, up or down all at once. So that's not how design works. It's it's not. I I like Van Gogh, but the I don't like the blue. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, you had these things that were relatively non-controversial. So you had adding higher visibility crosswalks, mm -hmm. uh, putting a curb bump out at a few of the intersections, striping a parking lane. These are things that passed with flying colors. I don't think unanimously, but the key element of the proposal for Bay Ridge, the reduction of lanes from four to two through the heart of the neighborhood... That was shot down. So you only had four members on the board voting in favor of it. By the way, Andrew Gernardis, he was a board member at the time, and he was one of the four people voting in favor. So his commitment to safe streets has gone back a long time. It didn't just start with this last campaign. The big aftermath here is that Sunset Park has seen a big drop in injuries on 4th Avenue the past few years. The injuries on 4th Avenue were half of what they were in 2013 when it mm. was still six lanes in, in Sunset Park. Yeah. In Bay Ridge, the injuries haven't gone down at all. You think about these changes that we could have had. The people who didn't have to get hurt, but got hurt anyway. It kind of goes back to this rudderless shit show back in 2013. And now we're still trying to get yeah. everything pointed in the right direction. But I'm assuming everything is sunshine and lollipops in Sunset Park now, though, right? They love it. Yes, everyone universally loves all safety changes ever. And that never happens. Never. So, yeah, you have lots of people who are still complaining about it. I was going to some of their board meetings uh, about a year ago, and you still had the people on the board who are still very upset about it and complaining about it. You go to random meetings, and someone will bring it up. I was at um, a meeting of CB10 earlier this month. They were talking about some street changes that are coming to 1st and 2nd Avenue in Sunset mm -hmm. Park. And even then, you had people bringing up what happened to 4th Avenue and just how awful it is now and how the traffic is so bad. But you know what? You can't say it's so dangerous now when it has half the number of injuries as it did before. So it becomes like a procedural, like, ooh, remember when they pushed this great thing through without our approval? <sighs> All right. So the number of people getting hurt went down, and honestly, that's all that matters. Once you understand what is actually possible, the new kinds of designs, you never really look at streets the same way. These are going to be fun. Um, so what can the DOT do? Let's dig into that. Yeah, so the number one thing that has to be done is getting people who are driving cars <laughs> to slow down. Yeah, I, J Justin Brennan, slow the... F down. It's true. Research is really startling. And when a person is hit by a car going 20 versus one going 30 versus one going... Yeah, if you get hit by someone who's going 40 in a car, you're probably going to die. If you don't die, it could be a long time before you fully recover, if you fully recover. So the city has already lowered the speed limit, and that's pretty good. And there are other cities, particularly internationally, that have lowered their speed limits even further. So particularly on... 
uh, residential streets, you could conceivably be looking at speed limits of 20 miles an hour instead of mm-hmm. 25. So not necessarily the avenues, not 5th or 4th or 3rd yeah. Avenue, but 83rd, 84th, 85th Street. Those are places where you might want to look at a lower speed limit. Realistically, that's probably not going to happen, but it's just something to keep in mind that lowering the speed limit really did work and getting people to stick to the speed limit will work even better. Yeah. And there are areas in Bay Ridge where it is not 25. I know it's like 30 or 35 just on like that like southerly version of 8th Avenue just before you hit the highway. As a general rule, any place where the speed limit was 35 before the speed limit change, it's going to be 30 now. Hey, at least now, um, with minor exceptions, no one goes over 25 miles an hour, right? 100% solved. Lots of people go more than 25 miles per hour. Yeah, so... We acknowledge that, you know, drivers are going to go faster, which is why enforcement and signs are things that we're not really going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about design, things to make people go slower or psychologically induce them to go slower and make things more survivable. So I got to start off with something that really annoys me, and it's U-turns. They delay traffic. They happen in crosswalks. When you have the light, they come out of nowhere, and it's just a dick move. Is there anything we can do to encourage people to actually go around the block like a sane person? Caltrops? <laughs> that, that would also affect pedestrians. Is that outside of the scope of the... Uh... I think caltrops are outside of the safety part of our... Okay. <laughs> One thing to note is that in New York City, U-turns are illegal in commercial districts. So that's not the case in most of the country, but it is here. And honestly, U-turns aren't a big target for street safety as far as I know, but... Yeah, there are some of the design concepts that can limit them as a side effect. The most obvious thing is to narrow the street, which is often called a silver bullet for road safety. So that means removing lanes um, and making sidewalks bigger, I Yes? Uh, not at all. So <laughs> what it does mean is repainting the lane dividers to give cars a bit less room side to side, usually so we can fit in other things like dedicated turn lanes or pushing the parking lane in a bit to create kind of a buffer between the sidewalk and where cars park. Yeah, I've seen that in Manhattan. It's how they build protected bike paths. They use the parked car lane to separate the bikes from the cars, and that's pretty efficient. And it creates a narrower street, which means it's harder to pull off a U-turn, which usually needs about eh, 35 feet of space. Yeah. So make it harder to turn, fewer people will do it. No enforcement's needed for that. Just design the street to not encourage it. Okay, but aren't Bay Ridge streets and stuff already pretty narrow? Um, okay, so now we have to talk about the actual width of the streets. So most travel lanes in New York and nationwide are about 12 feet wide. And it was a mistake to make them that wide. Okay. So smart cars are only five feet. Sedans are around six feet. And SUVs are about seven. Emergency vehicles like fire trucks, you know, you're talking about eight and a half feet wide. Mm. And the reason we settled on 12 as a country was because we figured you'd need lots of extra side to side room in order to reach top speeds on highways. I think I see the problem. We designed our road widths with highway speeds in mind and highway safety in mind. It's wide enough to avoid stuff like side swipes when you drift a bit going 50 miles an hour but it is not designed for urban environments. No, no. (laughs) So a narrower travel lane. So not even so much a narrower street, just a narrower lane. That has a huge effect on speed. What about some of the other 
streets and lane widths in Bay Ridge. What are they? I mean, residential can't be the same as an avenue. So an average residential street in Bay Ridge has a travel lane of about 14 feet, which is just enough room for two sedans to squeeze past each other. So this allows for double parking, but when no one is double parked, it encourages people to speed. Yeah. It's two feet wider than a standard highway lane. Finding reasons to narrow that can send a strong subliminal message to drivers to, as our councilman says, just to slow that fuck down. So what are some ways of actually taking a residential street and making it narrower other than dropping, say, a really crappy bike lane through it? Part of what a really crappy bike lane is, is that it's just paint. Um, You can put the paint in there without putting the bike lane in and having the cyclist go down the door zone of a residential street. There we go. So doing some striping down a residential street. I know that there's optical illusion like crosswalks and things that they use in Europe. They paint little kids and stuff on like speed bumps so that when you're driving, you get this visual indicator of like, shit, kid, and you slow down. Because they know you're not going to slow down for the speed bump. I'd like to think that drivers in Bay Ridge will slow down for kids. Sometimes it don't always... Uh, no, it does not always work that way. I haven't seen that all the time in my experience, but... By the way, I was thinking for the striping. Since a residential street is 14 feet for travel and the door zone is 4 feet from a parked car, I think you could probably stripe, say, the driver's side of each residential street to discourage cars and cyclists from getting that close. That'd help pedestrians, that'd help the cyclists, that'd help everyone. And it would slow everyone down. But either way, we got put some stripes down, or if there's enough room to keep them out of the door zone, a bike lane. And if you want to go, oh no, a bike lane, I can't double park. The ticket is the same for double parking as it is for blocking a bike lane. It's 115 bucks. Plus, it's the exact same enforcement group. Nothing's going to change in that regard. That's right. There's actually an important distinction in how motor vehicle enforcement is done. So there are four police officers with the 6-8 precinct. They do moving violations. Yes. So if a car is in motion, they can do ticketing for speeding, for going through red lights, for failure to yield intersections, things Mm -hmm. like that. For vehicles that are parked, so parked in a bike lane, double parked, uh, parked in a bus stop, you know. All that stuff. All that stuff. That's a different division, really, is a civilian division of NYPD. And they have a totally different schedule and how they do things. So if, if you're complaining about double parking, maybe don't complain to 6-8. Direct it to the appropriate location. So we kind of covered residential streets. Let's talk about the arterials in Bay Ridge. That's right. So Fifth Avenue. So that's 40-foot wide street. So take away the uh, the parking lanes that are 8 feet wide. That leaves 12-foot lanes for traffic going north, 12 feet for traffic going south. All right, so can that possibly be smaller? Honestly, that width is about spot on for one important reason. So it's buses. Buses are much wider than the other vehicles that we were talking about before. They really need the 12 feet of clearance, especially when there is another bus coming in the opposite Mm -hmm. direction. So Fifth Avenue isn't really a great candidate for narrowing the lanes. Okay, um, what about Third Avenue? That's interesting. So that's, that's a whopping 50 feet wide. That's, uh, that's 10 feet wider than 5th Avenue, and it's other than 4th Avenue. As commercial avenues go, that's the widest one. And there's only one lane in each direction, so you're looking at travel lanes that are about 17 feet wide. <laughs> so that is a great candidate for a road diet. Yeah, and we chatted about that in the last episode, a little bit earlier in this one. We narrow the lanes, we make some extra space, we could put a, a turning lane in, right? You can do lots of things with the extra space. 
If we narrowed Third Avenue into two 12-foot lanes in each direction, we'd have 10 feet of space left over. So that's, that's a lot you could do with that. Hmm. So yeah, a dedicated turn lane, uh, pedestrian islands at the intersections where you have high-foot traffic, like uh, Bay Ridge Avenue, Bay Ridge Parkway, 86th Street. Yeah. That's actually something that we haven't talked about. Pedestrian islands. What are they? So they're exactly how they sound. If you've probably seen them, it's basically a sidewalk that's put halfway across a crosswalk in the center of the street. The key benefit is shortening the crossing distance for pedestrians trying to get across the street. If you've got a 50-foot wide street, all you have to do is get... 25 feet at a time so yeah it's smaller chunks and you can safely look in the other direction while you're safely on one of those pedestrian islands there are some pedestrian islands i've seen in like some other cities in the united states and the idea is that you have to make a little bit of a turn facing oncoming traffic for the next lane to make sure that they look the right way when they're crossing that street there are a lot of little things you can do with those pedestrian islands that dramatically improve safety and you get that by pausing people between streets And on top of that, there are um, knock-on effects of pedestrian islands, one of which that I've seen is cars have to take turns much more slowly than they otherwise would have to. Yeah, yeah. So a slow turn means that you have a better reaction time as a driver. So there's a concept in street design called points of conflict. So every time a car drives across a path that someone else might be using, whether it's someone on a bike, a pedestrian, another car... You know, that's a point of conflict. It's a place where a crash can happen. And turns usually have the most points of conflict. Oncoming traffic, pedestrians in multiple directions, cars coming from the side streets, all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, and I imagine that pedestrian islands have a huge effect on the worst drivers. Unlike narrowing a lane or bike lanes or paint or whatever, these are actual obstacles in the middle of the road drag racing, people willfully breaking the law by speeding, those pedestrian safety islands can straight up total your car, and it is not a suggestion. No, that is not telling them to slow the F down on Twitter. That is basically threatening their car with, you know, physical harm. (laughs) Yeah. So actually, you know, actually multiple drivers in Garrison Beach crashed into the pedestrian safety islands when they were installed there last year. And those islands were made out of rubber. The DOT (laughs) can lay them down as kind of a test pilot pedestrian islands really quickly and cheaply. Yeah, and I imagine they got pretty upset when they were installed. But seriously, what were you doing? You're going so fast, you rammed straight into a big island where you shouldn't have been. I know some people got their, like, cars stuck, like the wheel went over and just, like, kept spinning and they couldn't get out of the pedestrian islands. Like, no shit, that's for pedestrians, buddy. I mean, at least it's better than no one actually getting hit. Like, those pedestrian islands are protective. They basically enable, like, like if you're the kind of person that wants to complain about how the pedestrian islands ruined Garrison Avenue, you can go and stand in the pedestrian island and have a video (laughs) taken of you complaining about this and not have to worry about getting hit by a car. But we can beef up pedestrian islands even more. We can add median dividers right down the middle of those roads for the whole block. That's what you see along 4th Avenue and Sunset. There it's because I think they need vents for the subway and stuff. But you can just have narrower medians. You can do tree plantings, beautiful stuff to them. It makes driving simpler. It limits the number of bad things that can happen, like people swerving into oncoming lanes. When you consider the thing that got us into this traffic mess was giving cars too much space on our roads to begin with, You'll see that most of the options are about giving them enough space to safely get through and not much more than that. Mm -hmm. So, for example, 
when you narrow the street to make more room for pedestrians, that's called the curb extension. Mm -hmm. So one variant is called a pinch point. All right. Pinch point sounds a little bit painful. It's when you expand out the sidewalk in the middle of the block. So taking away a parking space on either side and narrowing the road a little bit. It's a choke point mid-block that you need to slow down on, or at the very least, it reduces the time that a pedestrian has to spend in the street while they're crossing the street. They're great for creating mid-block crossing points on low-volume streets, though you can add markings and street lights for high-volume spots. So there's already one of these on 86th Street across from Century 21, but the smaller, less intrusive ones are also valuable too. So think about 68th Street along uh, Owl's Head Park, where there are lots of mid-block entrances and exits to the park. Yeah, I imagine you could even combine them with fire hydrants. By the way, is it still a pinch point if it's not on a corner and not mid-block? I mean, I see those all over the place, too. So that's a bulb out. Or, you know, you can call it a neck down or a curb extension or a gateway. There are lots of different names for them, but they accomplish more than just a pinch point. It strongly discourages double parking at the start of the street. Doesn't completely eliminate it. I've found some creative double parking uh, maneuvers oh, out here in Oh, man. I found one at like 6 a.m. in the dead center between two bulb outs. Literally is blocking the entrance to the street. Yeah. Hey, they discourage it, right? And it keeps visibility to street safety improvements like traffic lights and stop signs and all of that. It keeps that clear. You can't like park a big van right in front of the crosswalk, basically. And that's something that protects pedestrians while they do a common thing which is walk into the street past the parking lane so they can look down the street and check for oncoming traffic. Yeah, so it, this is also an example of a design where they figured people already do this, we should protect them while they do it. And fundamentally, by doing something like that, you're making a pedestrian-focused change to your street rather than a car-centric one, which is ultimately better, I think, for the city as a whole. Yeah, so why aren't these things absolutely everywhere? So some crossings are already pretty narrow. But uh, the main reason is that some streets have bus stops right next to a crossing. So you want the bus to be able to smoothly pull in so you don't want to block that approach with a bulb out. All right. So what about those things where they build the sidewalk out to meet the bus? Doesn't that mean that you don't have to kind of pull in? That's called a bus bulb. That's where you push out the sidewalk past the parking lane. Usually you only do that if there are two lanes in a single direction so cars can pass, especially if there's a dedicated bus lane. That's not feasible on 5th Avenue, for example, but it would be doable along 4th Avenue south of 86th Street or on 86th Street itself. Yeah, because there's a lane for cars to like pull around it. So what do you call it for what we have now on like 86th or 5th Avenue where the bus pulls over a curbside pullout. All right. So that is where a bus kind of pulls in. A bus bulb means they kind of stay in the lane and they stop. Doesn't that slow traffic? It does, but depending on the traffic levels, not by much. So if you have under 700 cars per hour, one lane is enough. All right. So on 86th Street, if they're under 700 cars an hour, they can just go around. So while that might slow down traffic a bit, a bus bulb is going to speed up the bus service uh, quite a bit since they don't need to constantly merge and unmerge into a travel lane. Mm. The sidewalk, you can raise it up to the exact height of the floor of the bus. And that makes boarding and unboarding, especially for mobility-challenged people, a lot faster on a bus. And like the subways, boarding time is one of the biggest things that you can improve if you want faster bus service. 
So being at a bus stop takes 22% of the time a bus needs to complete its route. Ooh. For comparison, being stuck at a red light is 1% less than that. So cutting bus stop dwell time, that gives the bus more time to actually be moving. And bus bulbs are a great way of doing that. Throw priority signaling into the mix where lights are pressured to change green if a bus is approaching. And you can really improve service with some small tweaks. So a bus can clear up traffic by like how much? Ah, well, so even a half-full B1 bus means 20 cars are no longer adding to traffic. And honestly, probably not adding to parking pressures either. Getting more people on a bus is one of the best ways that we can alleviate traffic now. Yeah, immediately. Yeah, and without digging new subway tunnels or weekend track work, a few slabs of concrete, a few traffic signal tweaks, a little bit of extra paint, get a bus lane in wherever you can. If you're looking for something with an immediate impact, that's a great goal, which is why it's a priority for a lot of transit engineers and advocacy groups. I like the um, traffic signal thing you mentioned, the, the pressuring the lights. Yeah, if you have a bus lane, you can even have a bus lane only green light. So that gives the bus three or four seconds to get ahead of traffic. Okay, so you can do that for bikes and pedestrians too, right? Yes, you can. In some places, they do. A few of the intersections on 86th Street... Um, 4th Avenue, 5th Avenue, uh, Fort Hamilton Parkway, you see pedestrians get a head start. You also see this on 4th Avenue up at uh, 72nd Street, maybe some other intersections as well. All right. So for a bus signal, do you need a dedicated bus lane for a bus traffic light? No, you don't need a, you know, no, <laughs> you, you don't need a bus lane for uh, a bus signal. I mean, we have all sorts of signaling devices for cars in the left turn lane, cars going straight. Um, there are already in some places, you know, bicycle specific uh, lights. So you can do this with buses as well. And you can right, also, cool. you know, you can utilize a queue jump. You know, that is exactly what it sounds like. It's letting buses jump in front of the line of traffic at intersections. Basically make a temporary bus lane out of a parking lane by taking away a few parking spots at the crosswalk. And it might already be a bus stop, which means that it's already there and the bus is already kind of primed at the crosswalk to move. Right. So that lane would get its own signal. But the thing is, is that temporary bus lane wouldn't continue on to the next block. The bus merges immediately on that green and it has a couple of seconds to do so. It gets ahead of all the other cars that are queued up. You could actually do this on Fifth Avenue only one lane in each direction, you could get the effect of a bus lane and you could get buses actually moving not just the same speed as cars, but faster than cars. But on top of all this, how do we keep assholes out of these lanes, whether it's trucks doing deliveries or just your run-of-the-mill dipshit? In 2018, last year, the DOT finally got the authority to use camera enforcement for bus lanes. So it only applied to 16 specific bus routes, and that should definitely get expanded. So it's a lot of manpower to police an entire bus route. And that's where camera enforcement, automated enforcement can play a big role. But since it's a limited number of routes, the MTA mostly chooses to enforce its select bus service routes, which it's trying to boost ridership on. It'd be great to see not only school zone speed cams, which Gennardist, I think, just passed the bill for to like boost it up to like 750, but to get Bus lane enforcement as well. That's something the Senate can do. Yeah. The state also prohibits an even simpler solution. Put dashboard cameras on buses. 
This is definitely something Gernardis can push at on the state level if he chooses to. So Andy Byford, who is the president of New York City Transit within the MTA, he's made a plea for them you know, this uh, uh, past November at one of the MTA board meetings. Okay, so this stems from that same law. That means um, I think school buses can't have cameras on them to document drivers that speed past them when they have their stop signal on. Yeah, so the bill allowing that has been waiting in the assembly since this past summer. Uh, it passed the state Senate, and even our state senator at the time, Marty Golden, supported it. Holy sh... Marty Golden supported a camera-based traffic enforcement law? <laughs> the worst person that you know just made an excellent point. I mean, I feel like I need to take a drink. So, bus cameras should be a slam dunk. There isn't even a hint of a bill allowing that, sadly. That's another good reason to attend the Street Safety Summit on the 27th and ask our elected officials about it. But even if we do catch scoff laws, even if we put cameras on these buses, there is one group that really can't be persuaded not to double park, and in my opinion, that's trucks. They're pretty much the primary culprit for double parking on the avenues. Yeah, and I'd agree with that. And double parking by trucks is legal under certain circumstances. It is It is legal under certain circumstances if there is no reasonable parking to be had in the vicinity I think they can temporarily stand. I forget how much uh, room they're given in terms of determining what's reasonable. I think it might be 50 feet, it might be 100 feet. There's another factor at play there as well, and that's that they're doing a much better service for the greater good by delivering cargo to our retail stores yeah. than, say, the typical car that's parked on the side of the street, which, you know, on a commercial avenue, maybe that's a vehicle that's turning over every 30 minutes to every 60 minutes. It could also be just some random jerk. Yeah, or, yeah, exactly. That's basically squatting in what's supposed to be a two hour limit spot. Those trucks are definitely helping out the local economy. So it's hard to get too upset at them. Are, are you going to go to these individual drivers and tell them that, no, you, you can't do this. You know, you're basically telling them that they can't do their job. So there are ways of designing to help them out. You would create delivery zones. They're also called um, CVLZs, commercial vehicle load zones. And these are pretty common in places like Seattle or Houston. Usually there aren't more than one or two deliveries occurring at any given time on like a stretch of one block. So about three parking spots tops that could easily handle two vans or one large semi-truck. And to park there, you just need a special permit. And Vision Zero doesn't really address couriers and truck drivers. They're also walking and handling heavy loads right in the middle of the street pretty frequently. Yeah, it, it, you're, you're right. It doesn't. And there's, there's very little data on worker injuries and... Pretty much none on near misses. There are some alarming studies on how dangerous commercial vehicles are to road users. So there's a 2013 study in New York found 14% of all delivery trucks resulted in a conflict with the bicycle, for example, which is pretty insane. Um, yeah, and even if removing some parking spots for trucks means that we still get double parked cars, I'd much rather those double parked cars be like a sedan than a double parked semi truck with people buzzing all around it and moving boxes. Trucks are much harder to pass safely, and especially on an avenue like Fifth, where you also have buses. So, I assume these designs are usually killed by community boards because they eliminate parking? Not necessarily. So, actually, this past November, Community Board 7 in Manhattan asked for them on Central Park West. They're actually among the least controversial reasons for removing private car parking spaces. And I think everyone understands how problematic truck double parking really is. You know, businesses should love it. It helps uh, their deliveries out. 
The reason you rarely see it in New York is the city usually tries to increase curbside parking availability by adjusting the rates and locations of parking meters. There's a bit that's going on in the space in terms of conflict between commercial drivers and and cyclists Hmm. that I'm not particularly a big fan of. And it's not that I enjoy going down the street in a bike lane and coming upon a box truck or a FedEx truck. That's one of the more stressful things that I will encounter. But at the same time, as a city and as a populace, we're not really giving those drivers the tools that they need to do their job without creating those conflicts. You know, what we should be targeting is the fact that we're not giving them the tools to do their jobs in a way that's safe for other road users. Yeah, and there are entire advocacy groups that are about urban freight delivery. The last mile trucks are always going to be a thing. Maybe not cross-country trucking, but always locally. And I know that one of the things that the city has been doing lately is off-hour deliveries. Um, They're testing, I think specifically in Manhattan and downtown Brooklyn, they're incentivizing early morning and late night deliveries. They are trying to get delivery companies and businesses to sign on to doing deliveries when traffic is low, usually with a monetary reward, combined with emphasizing where they'll save money in fines. I know the big sticking point, though, has been getting store owners to accept deliveries that late. They'd have to be in their store super late to accept those deliveries, or they'd need to be okay with the deliveries happening while they aren't there. Um, That's called an unassisted delivery. So usually it's not outside. It's in a keyed or key code enabled vestibule to a business where the delivery people can't actually get further into the store, but they can lock things up in the front. So that does require some design changes, mostly to the existing building stock and how we design stores. But it's not difficult. So now we have a couple of good ways that we can limit truck double parking, dedicated delivery zones. Yeah, and I'd say that unlike some of the outer boroughs, we're actually pretty dense and we have some pretty downtown-like problems. But also like the outer boroughs, we also have a lot of resistance to change. The most innovative thing I have seen advocated for on a grassroots level is almost always a stop sign or a speed bump. God, don't get me started on speed bumps. Screw speed bumps, man. It sounds like you have opinions, Dan. (laughs) I have research data, not opinions, because speed bumps have been pretty heavily researched. And Are you talking about speed bumps or speed humps? (laughs) Okay, wait, there's a difference between bumps and humps? And speed cushions. Even design variances in how to make a road lumpy. Speed bumps. Designed to jolt you and accomplish major speed reductions. You gotta slow nearly to a dead crawl on them. Speed humps, which are mostly what Bay Ridge has, you can pass safely at about 15 to 20 miles per hour. Speed cushions do the same, but they don't cover the whole width of the road. It's like a raised pillow in the road. They're wide enough to make most cars roll over them, but vehicles with Big wide frames like ambulances, fire trucks, uh, city buses, their wheels would go right around them. It doesn't slow them down. doesn't make the big thunk noise when they go over them. <laughs> All right. Okay, gotcha. So I guess my issue with speed humps, bumps, and cushions is one. They are expensive despite being so simple. They wear down. They take tons of damage. Snow plows mangle them, blah, 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 blah. You get it. For a long time, the DOT focused on putting these things mid-block, where people kind of assumed it was where people would be going the fastest and where most people would think they'd be most effective. You might think that right now. But the design element shouldn't be slowing down cars where they're the fastest. 
It should be about slowing them down near points of conflict, places where they can hit people. So usually a mid-block speed hump would slow a driver down, and then they'd have a half block to make up for what they now think is lost time, or to beat a light ahead of them so they speed up often faster than if there was no speed hump at all, And there's some pretty good data on this, actually, that shows how speeds increase after speed humps, usually at crosswalks, which are the exact place you don't want to increase vehicle speeds. Are you absolutely certain we can't talk about caltrops now? You know what? Caltrops should probably be added to the street design manuals. The DOT has been moving away from bumps, humps, cushions. Now I take that back. They're not moving away from cushions, are they? No, the moments where there are good speed humps a lot of times in front of schools they I think they're trying to convert those to speed cushions so that the school buses themselves aren't jolted all around so and actually you can put a speed hump on a crosswalk and that becomes a raised crosswalk they're actually all over the place now they're actually part of the senior safety initiative as well as to raise that up and if you do that on m- even wider segments it ends up being called a speed table Which also brings me to another design element, which is raising the whole goddamn intersection, which is super cool. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It's as simple as it sounds. You raise up the entire intersection, the crosswalk, the roadbed, all of it. And it makes it the height of the sidewalk. So like a raised crosswalk, they dramatically increase the likelihood of a motorist to yield to a pedestrian. Yeah, in Boston, I remember I read one study where the cars in the intersection, when before they put the, the raised intersection in, only 10% of cars yielded to pedestrians. And after they were put in, half, half of all cars actually yielded. It is mostly a psychological thing, but... There is a safety effect of having pedestrians in a crosswalk higher up. Older people, kids, a lot of them, they can actually look over the cars and see how many cars are waiting. And by making it level of the sidewalk, it's telling pedestrians, this is your space. You have right of way here. Yeah, yeah. Pedestrians being able to see is a pretty important element of street safety design. So one thing that most people don't notice on almost all crossings is how cars need to stop a few feet before a crosswalk on multiple lane streets. Yeah, those are the stop lines. Also can be called yield lines on streets without traffic lights. So do you know why cars can't just stop right up at the edge of the crosswalk? Honestly, not really. So the distance between the crosswalk and the stop line is usually custom for each intersection, so that a pedestrian at the corner who's looking at an angle can see the front of each car that's waiting on a two-lane street. So the closer a car pulls up to the intersection, the more the car closest to the pedestrian is blocking his view to any other cars that are waiting in more distant lanes. By pushing the cars back, pedestrians can see each waiting car. Okay, I get it, because... I'm standing in the crosswalk, I'm trying to cross the first lane, a car stops, and it yields. So I start to cross, but if it stops really close to the crosswalk, it's blocking my view of the next lane. So I'm crossing, and maybe there is a car in the next lane that doesn't see me, I don't see it, creates a blind spot for me, and that other car ain't yielding. And that's a fatality, or at least a serious injury. At least stop lines are a design that we already have. And, you know, they could be made better. So, no, 91st Street and 5th Avenue? Yeah. Yeah, it's got the pinch points, the bulb out, the big fat stop line in advance of the crosswalk. When I see someone actually come to a stop at the stop line, it's like I almost have to write it down. It's like, well, on the 
the 15th day of the third month in the year of our Lord, 2019. I just someone... saw <laughs> someone actually stop at the damn stop line. Like, you could have a bunch of other stuff, but yeah, that stop line is constantly impinged on. And I think it's because no one knows what they're really for. No, I really don't think that people rolling over a stop line is because they don't know what it's for. I think it's because they don't give a fuck. The thing that we currently have, it's important. There's a reason it's there and people don't pay attention to it. So we need to design it so that people absolutely goddamn have to. And I'm going to take this from the uh, DOT report that they released at the McKinley press conference. Rectangular rapid flashing beacons. Remember how some crosswalks have that push to cross button? The little buttons that never work. Yeah, they're almost considered a placebo effect. They've pretty much been discontinued in uh, New York City. Although you still see them in places nearby like Jersey City, much to the annoyance of street safety advocates there. I guess the idea with uh, those is you just make, uh, you connect them back up, you make them work again. Really all it is is you take those like push to cross buttons and instead of wiring them up to a traffic light, you wire them up to make a bunch of basically disco lights on a yield sign just like start flashing like hell really bright. So that every car coming knows, hey, someone pushed a button to cross in front of you. You might want to slow down and yield to them. And technically, it's not a legal requirement to stop while they're flashing. If the car sees you have finished crossing, they can technically roll through it like it's a yellow. Right. So it's basically like push to enable yellow traffic light. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, Dan and I have got the DOT report uh, that was issued at the McKinley Press Conference yeah. right now. The example that they use is a crosswalk at a school that's up on uh, Hoyt Street and President Street, I guess in Carroll Gardens. Yeah. You've got the school crossing sign. You press the button and the the lights start flashing in the beacon and it gives the kids and the parents an opportunity to cross. Yeah. It's in a crosswalk. It would be a place where they have the legal right to cross anyway. It just creates more visibility to the drivers that are coming up that there are people actively using that crosswalk. Yeah. And I mean, I'm thinking just in Bay Ridge, useful spots like Fort Hamilton Parkway in front of the Fort Hamilton Senior Center off of 100th. I don't think there's a stoplight there, but when you do want to cross, you want some time and you want to make damn sure that no one's speeding down that stretch. It's at least something to protect an otherwise unprotected crosswalk. I wish there was like something more we could do because I'm like thinking to like Europe where one of the best ways that they slow down otherwise unslowed downable intersections is you drop a roundabout. I just wish that American streets were like wide enough for that kind of thing. Well, Dan, I have something that might blow your mind here. Many roundabouts. Like applicable to Bay Ridge. Yeah. Roundabouts. Yeah. Applicable to Bay Ridge. You don't even need to put up a little garden or whatever in the middle. You just kind of bump out the road a little bit with a little bit of asphalt. It's like a circular few inch tall speed bump in the middle of the road with markings that tell you to drive around it in a circle. I mean, yeah, that is a neat design. I don't think it's one that Bay Ridge drivers will really respect. But then again, we can just go back to putting a race center in the middle of the road, like a traditional roundabout or in the United States, I guess we call them traffic circles more often than not. You kind of need 24 feet of road space, which means like a two lane road. Usually you also intersect a two lane road because you don't want to build an oval. You want to build a circle. So the intersection should kind of be even. But that would work on some Bay Ridge streets. For example, a lot of the Shore Road intersections could accommodate them, especially where it crosses Bay Ridge Parkway, 86, all of the two lanes. 
theoretically, you could remove traffic lights on some of those sections. You can actually increase the throughput of the road because it takes less time for a car on average to move through a like traffic circled intersection than a stoplighted intersection because everyone just goes slowly, but no one ever comes to a complete stop. You would also still have a safe crossing because they essentially operate as pedestrian islands in the middle of even narrow streets. And if Shore Road is a bit too major of a road, we could put them on Colonial or Narrows, where the DOT usually can't justify a full streetlight. And by the way, since people would need to turn into a roundabout at the intersections, you would actually kind of have to keep people from parking at the corners if we were going to do that. Yeah, they need to be daylit. Uh, daylit? You mean like sunny? Daylighting. So this is where you keep parked cars away from the crosswalks, usually, you know, 10 to 15 feet or so. So you remember how we were talking about stop lines? Yeah. So how cars need to be set back a bit for pedestrians to see what's going on at the two lane intersections? Yeah. So I assume daylighting is when you do that, but not for cars in travel lanes. You do it for parked cars. You tell people they can't park their cars next to a crosswalk because people can't look down the street. Yeah. So it's another way of accomplishing what a bulb out does. So a bulb out lets you walk past the parked car lane, lets you look down the street. So daylighting is when you do that on smaller residential streets. So pedestrians don't even need to walk past any parked cars in order to see, and more importantly, to be seen. Yeah, I can see that as super important on intersections without traffic lights. If a car is rolling through, they need more time to see pedestrians approaching the crosswalk, even if they're still on the sidewalk. And if there is a parked car right up at that corner, they won't see that pedestrian until it's too late. Yeah, so there's been a lot of pushback against daylighting in Bay Ridge, uh, especially along uh, Narrows and uh, Colonial, actually. Daylighting is most important for the people who can't look over even a small car. So kids, daylighting, bulb outs, all that visibility stuff. It's important for kids. Yeah, these are precisely the kind of people who are most at risk from even a slow-moving car. Um, You know, I, I never really told anyone this. But if you cross Bay Ridge Parkway at uh, 8th Avenue, right opposite McKinley Park, you see some flowers that are always attached to the um, chain link fence by the highway. Um, And that's for my friend Ivan. He um, went to elementary school with me. He went to middle school with me, um, but not high school because he was hit and killed uh, walking home from McKinley Park. Um, I was a half a block away. I saw him die. I... He was dragged. He was dra- he, he got caught in the, the wheel well of the car. And I just simply don't get, I just don't get how people think that their convenience is more important than someone's life. A lot of the people who are advocates in this kind of space, they are advocates because something bad happened to them or someone that they mm. love. So the organization Families for Safe Streets, like, that organization has basically the worst membership dues imaginable. Pretty much everyone in that organization has lost a close family member or friend to uh, traffic violence like yeah. this. And that's, I don't actually have that. That's not why I've gotten involved in this. But I'm exceptionally paranoid of the fact that someday this absolutely could happen. It almost seems statistically likely yeah. just at the rate of injuries and fatalities in you know due to car crashes in America today that you know it will happen to yeah. me or someone that I care about and you know like it's something that kills more people than gun violence does yeah and i know that there are people who get a little bit sensitive about the comparison 
because yeah. they're always having that thrown in their face by the gun nutters. And no one takes the things that the gun nutters say seriously. We already know that they're making the arguments in bad faith. It's not because they all of a sudden want to do something about car violence. It's because they want nothing done about gun violence just the way that nothing is being done about car violence now. Yeah. As our friend and, and uh, your co-host uh, Rachel has pointed out before on Twitter, when we say that there's a problem... And then someone else comes along and says, hey, here's this other problem. That doesn't make zero problems. That makes two, two problems. problems. So, yeah, yeah, I just, you know, I, I don't want to wait around for the day when it happens to me before I start doing something. Yeah. And I know that we're going really long on this episode, but it's because this is something that is one of the most likely things to kill someone in Bay Ridge. And it's not something that can be taken lightly. It has killed tons of people in Bay Ridge. It's going to affect many more. It's going to take a long time to get systemic change because it's about building and concrete and and mortar. And we all have to kind of get on board with what this means and why the people who are working on this stuff are experts. They are people who know what they're talking about. And we can't just like backseat drive street safety. We need to get everyone in the driver's seat and understand what the rules are and what the science is. Because this will save tons of lives. I can't imagine a single unelected kind of semi-government position that can save more lives than a community board's transit committee. I genuinely can't. It's, it's lowest barrier to entry. Most people you can genuinely save. And I'm astounded that it isn't used to greater impact and frequency. It's depressing. But anyway. And also, like in, in Bay Ridge, you see some very, very meager attempts at daylighting and the pushback just blows up. So there's a potential of eight parking spots on every corner. The way that the DOT usually quote unquote daylights an intersection is by mm. removing one of those parking spots. Um, that's not how daylighting is supposed to work. It's supposed to be all eight of those spots. Yeah. In Los Angeles, uh, this is a city that has... Uh, a pretty strong reputation of being a car-centric city. Like people don't walk in Los Angeles. People don't take the subway yeah. in Los Angeles. They just you know they drive around in their cars all the time. Yeah, they literally have wheels grafted to their feet. It's an overgeneralization, but it really is a car-dependent city. It's also a city where daylighting happens on every corner. That's the way it is. That's the rule. There's no parking on the corner. Any one of those eight corners, there's no parking there. Yeah. Why do we have so much resistance in Bay Ridge where a majority of people are getting around by subway or by bus or by something yeah. other than by car? There, there was like the um, school construction authority thing that we're probably going to be releasing the audio on, um, on our community archives on our webpage. And there was just so much resistance to this one guy, um, Noah, who Noah's awesome, but he just got up and was like, why are we like basically shitting on the idea of this school for a minority of residents who drive. Everyone flipped out. And I just wish I was there to just like lean into a microphone or something and be like, according to census data, including Diker Heights, only 25% of residents drive. The rest are public transit. And even if they're taking the subway or the bus, how do you think they're walking to those places? You know what? After that, I just want to say a word that's fun to say um, that is also a transit design element that I kind of like chicanes. We paused the recording so we could look up on Google and YouTube to see 
that we were pronouncing it right. Yeah. Spoiler alert, Dan was doing it right. I wasn't. <laughs> and I really do like them because it's it's basically when you alternate curb extensions and you force cars to drive down a zigzag down the block. That's uh, that's an extreme solution for uh, most streets, but it's effective. So chicanes are almost essential to shared streets. But you can also just do a single bend chicane where you make someone turn a bit, just a bit, where they might otherwise go down a straight street. So it's essentially the right way to do a speed hump because it's built into the street design and it's not reliant on maintaining a lump in the road. Yeah. Actually, you know, lots of things create kind of a chicane effect. So putting a pedestrian safety island on an already narrow two-way road that narrows the street down too much that cars need to kind of turn a bit to get around the island. So push in the sidewalk a bit to make room for that. You basically have a chicane. I have a fixation on the super windy ones because on some really cool streets I've seen in other cities where cars and pedestrians mix together on the same space, they use them there. So what they do is they slow down the cars and that's how you create a shared street, which is a street that doesn't have any distinction between a sidewalk or the roadbed. Without traditional markers like curbs or tree lines or asphalt, drivers aren't lulled into the belief that they own the road. They drive slower, they usually throw in chicane elements like tree plantings and stuff that undulate to remind drivers that it isn't a straightaway, but the cars usually slow down so much that it basically becomes a pedestrian plaza at the same time, and it's kind of like the dynamic you see in old-timey movies where pedestrians or cars are all hanging out on the road, making eye contact, actually being human beings to each other, dynamically giving each other the right of way. Yeah, and if you think that busy streets can't handle that, I mean, East 43rd Street in Manhattan, right next to Grand Central Station, you know, that's already a shared street. It was announced back in 2017, and the pilots were so successful, it was uh, fully funded and opened in uh, 2018. So Flatiron, that'll be the neighborhood that gets the next one. Yeah, and one of the big things shared streets do is focus on having a specific road not be a place you drive through. But it's still a place you can make a destination or a starting point. Yeah. So cars have to go slow, much slower than the speed limit. And the design forces them to do that. So it discourages through traffic. But yeah, it still lets you park, get to a driveway, or drop people off. It just strongly encourages cars to use arterials and discourages them away from driving down entirely residential roads all the time. Yeah. And the only reason to be on a shared street block is to actually do something on that block if you're driving. Yep, and it reclaims the street. So stickball can make a comeback. <laughs> I think Bay Ridge should support that for that reason alone. But also, you know, stores can expand out. Everyone loves the street fairs, right? Yeah. Let's just uh let's just make those permanent. Yeah. On residential streets, it can be a great way of revitalizing stores that are around the corners, you know, the, the ones that are off the avenues, they usually don't get much foot traffic. And it can be a lot harder for store owners to keep those afloat. So, yeah, actually, stores can already kind of reclaim space like that if they want to go through some bureaucratic hoops. So it's called the Street Seats Program, where a store, usually a restaurant or a business that needs seating, they can claim the parking space in front of it and build a sidewalk cafe and seating area where the parking space used to be. So instead of private vehicle storage, we have something that is helping the local economy and just fun and beautiful to boot. That's right. Which brings me to the biggest street redesign element we can possibly do. Oh boy, I think I know where this is going. 
We're going to ban cars. <laughs> we delist the street. That's right. <laughs> I think we might have taken this episode a little bit beyond the line of what might be acceptable in Bay Ridge, but... It's still technically an element in the toolbox, and there's a good way to do it, and there's a bad way to do it. So something that you see is that cities like Madrid have started banning private automobiles you know, within their city centers. Yeah. And they're seeing pretty dramatic increases in their economy. So it's not just a function of safety for pedestrians or yeah. cyclists or anything like that. It makes it attraction. It's an attraction and it's a boon for businesses. That's a good way of doing the street delisting. You can still get vehicles in for like yeah. emergencies, things like that. That's not ever going to go away. But it's just the idea that someone who's driving by themselves in a Chevy Escalade is going to hog the street, to, I don't know, double park in front of the deli, that would be going away. Of course, there's also the bad way of doing it, like we've done here. We delist a street and we just turn it into storage for a car dealership. I, oh my god, yeah, that one narrow diagonal street that's in the in the 90s, right? It's right off from 4th Avenue. Oh my Avenue. gosh, yeah, that is delisted. It's not actually a street. It doesn't have a street sign or anything like that. But it's, it's basically just still a road. It's inventory at this point. Jeez. <laughs> the insult to the injury is it's also for a car lot. It's more cars than it was before. <sighs> Womp womp. We are definitely ending this soon, but I do want to do one last thing that I think really no one could be opposed to, like a kind of a palate cleanser, and that's tactile paving. Repaving and installing tiles on all crosswalks, ideally on every sidewalk, that are just very slightly bumpy in a very specific pattern. Um, Have you been to the Bay Ridge Avenue station since it reopened? I actually have not, no. So if you... Notice when you go there what they've done and probably the only really important thing they did during that whole station redesign, like screw the standing benches and the USB ports. The only thing that I really cared about is that they put these tiles down that are kind of like grooved channeled little tiles and they start on the platforms and they go up the stairs and they go through the turnstiles and they branch out. You can literally follow this like grooved tile in a direction. And it's for people who have vision impairment issues and follow the groove in the tile and it guides you all the way through the station. You can do this for crosswalks. You can do this for sidewalks. You can help people who are blind or visually impaired navigate all of the street safety improvements that you might otherwise put in. We have the little bumpy bits at the uh, the curb cuts, but that's that's it. There's just a lot more we can do for the vision impaired. At the very least, those weird intersections should be targeted for immediate improvement. So. 94th and 4th, Marine and 3rd, all of those spots where the grid squeezes down into acute angles and you get closer to the bridge. Yeah. And, you know, I really think that this has been such a really important episode and we've really only scratched the surface despite how in-depth we've gone. It is always amazing to realize just how much thought and effort goes into designing something as everyday as a street and how much better they can actually be. Clearly a lot of street design is a visual thing. So that's why we were so fussy on naming things. So, you know, if you want to know more, Google it. Yeah, the terms we've used are the terms that will pop up a ton of results. So thank you for listening to Radio Free Bay Ridge. Please subscribe. Remember to check us out on Twitter at, at Radio Free BR or on Facebook or Instagram. 
You can also check out the show notes and other fun stuff at RadioFreeBayRidge.org, our website. This past week, I published a bunch of maps and analysis about the public advocates race, the state of the GOP and the Democratic Party in Bay Ridge. We're going to be posting some community archive stuff, which is basically our website-only raw audio of events that have happened in Bay Ridge. So we're going to be posting up two of the most recent school construction authority meetings, and you get to hear what the neighborhood thought about building a new school, and spoiler, is not good. But subscribe if you haven't already, and if you have, give us a rating or a nice review. To be honest, it won't really affect our stats at all because we're hyper-local, but it does make me feel nice and warm and fuzzy. And if you're unhappy with the state of street safety in Bay Ridge, don't boo, show up to the town hall. Yeah. Wednesday, March 27th, 6.30 p.m. at PS264. And until then, stay free, Bay Ridge. Bay Ridge.